Morning, church, um, and welcome guests. Um, my name is James, as Randy said, and I serve as a pastoral resident, um, a program that our church does to equip future church leaders. So I'm very thankful uh, to be with you guys this morning and um, bring uh, God's word before us. As I look into the audience, I see many faces and uh, individuals, families that have had a, a great impact uh, in my short time here at Church of Mellon. I'm just thankful uh, to be able to stand before you today, um, someone who isn't deserving of this opportunity, but by God's grace have been given this um, to, to present God's word. So, so the section of Exodus we come to today contains things that have been growing in, in, in anticipation over the past few weeks. Each event until now has been directing our attention to this major meeting between Moses and his brother Aaron and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. As we'll read today, Moses and Aaron stand before Pharaoh bold and confident, eagerly expectant that they would walk away successful, trusting that their God, Yahweh, who we learned is the covenant God, his name, is with them. They have every reason to believe that his long-awaited plan of deliverance is now underway. However, as we'll see in the passage today, we'll see a prime example of how unmet expectations can drive a people towards the brink of despair. The story recorded for us in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 through 6.13 functions to equip us to respond faithfully and remain resolute in our confidence towards God when unexpected suffering arises. Throughout this week, my prayer, my hope, has been that through reading about these people's circumstances, we'll grow to see how God really can bear the weight of our full trust. And that as suffering comes, we'll be more apt to fight it off, fight off the ever-present temptation to fall into despair. So as I said, the text before us has been building into great anticipation. This meeting and the words exchanged by the two parties are the watershed moment in this part of the Exodus. The dialogue here introduces us to Israel's main conflict to getting out of Egypt. But prior to reading, let's think about what we talked about last week. How, we, how have we gotten to this moment? Last Sunday, we saw Moses end his journey and his 40-year exile as a fugitive in Midian by coming back to Egypt before the elders of the Israelites. He came communicating God's plan that he had received at the burning bush. This plan to deliver a people, to bring them up out of Egypt into the promised land. The elders receive and believe the message from God, and all, Moses and Aaron included, fall down and worship that God has finally heard the cry for deliverance. It's a beautiful moment in Exodus 4.31. Walking away, Moses and Aaron's confidence must have been sky high. For Moses, a man who has been brought lower than low through an exile as a shepherd for 40 years, is now finally expectant that God, what God said would happen is going to happen. The script's all laid out. It's rolling. And as they approach Pharaoh, they have every reason to believe that what God said would happen would progress. 
So now I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 5, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible, a blue Bible, under the seat in front of you, and we'll be on that, in that Bible on page 28. Exodus 5, verse 1. Afterward, after this meeting with the elders, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now for many in the room this morning, do these words sound familiar to something? Maybe you envision Moses and Aaron bursting through the palace doors, singing together the kids' version of this demand. But what we find here is very different. These two men, one a former enemy of the state, come boldly and audaciously proclaim with force, backed with the weight that surely would have gotten Pharaoh's attention. Like I said, Moses is back in Egypt after 40 years in Midian, but this time he's confident that this is God's time to move. The, this, this will lead to freedom for the people of Israel. However, these men, notice, they don't come reliant on their own authority, They've come in the name of the Lord. And saying, thus says the Lord, Moses knows, he's revealing that his only hope of success will be because of God. God here is making his rightful claim to his people. He has seen their afflictions and he has heard their cry. He knows their suffering and he has come down to bring them up out of the land of Egypt into the good and broad one. Pharaoh has something that doesn't belong to him. The people are the Lord's. Finally, after all this time, unjustly being held in bondage, all the pain from unending labor will be no more. All the dehumanizing statements and shouting from the taskmasters will be silenced, and the unending flow of bitter tears will finally be wiped away. God has come to rescue, demanding Pharaoh through the mouths of these simple men to release the people once and for all. We might imagine that outside the palace doors, among the people of Israel, a father looking, on, looking upon his, a sleeping newborn, a son, and sighing with relief, knowing that his child will never have to know a day spent serving an Egyptian. Or we might think of a mother carefully gathering treasured family possessions over the generations, each one reminding her of those loved ones who had longed to see this day finally come, and she gets to see it. Or we might imagine an elder, one who met with Moses and Aaron, bowed in prayer praising and giving thanks to God and asking for courage and wisdom as he guides these people into new and uncharted waters, full of hope and anticipation, wondering what it will feel like to step foot on this sacred soil. The moment for the people of Israel had arrived. God was about to act. God had spoken. Is there anything Pharaoh could say to impede the inevitable? Let's see, in verse two, 
But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it but your work will not, re- will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmaster had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why? Have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? What began to look like a quick and gloriously triumphant exit has suddenly collapsed on itself. We see Pharaoh say, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Pharaoh, don't you understand? The Lord is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. The great I am, the God who simply is. Pharaoh's response clearly shows how seriously he takes these two Hebrew men and the God that they represent. In his mind, he's the Pharaoh. Period. End of discussion. He's never had a rival, and it's not to happen anytime soon. After all, he's the king of the nation that has firmly and comfortably had its thumb pinned down on Israel after all these years. And who from this group of slaves could possibly challenge that reign after all this time? And what does Lord mean to him? Why should he feel any threat to obey Yahweh? As far as he's concerned, he's top dog. And when he says for Israel to jump, they obediently respond back, how high? His statement that he does not know Yahweh is as as much about defiance against his claim to authority as it is about ignorance to his identity. Pharaoh certainly thinks he's sitting pretty, listening to these old men ramble on about a message from their God. He does what he wants, and he isn't bothered by by an authority outside himself. This man, Pharaoh, reeks of pride. He's self-deluded to think that he could go on disregarding the Lord. 
Friend, what we see here is a clear example of what the Bible calls sin. Now, prior to serving as a pastoral resident here at Church on Mill, I served as an intern with one of our international partners, 20 Schemes in Scotland. At the church I interned with, among various things, I'd help with their children's ministry on Thursday nights. There, I learned a helpful little acronym that we'd used in the class to help the kids learn about sin and an easy way for them to remember what it is. And I think this acronym perfectly describes Pharaoh's demeanor right now, right here. It goes sin, S-I-N, S, shove off God, which is British for get away from me, God. I, I'm in charge. N, no to you. Shove off, I'm in charge, no to you. This is Pharaoh's demeanor. And this is what sin is. Sin is to be in opposition or rebellion or defiance towards God. God is the creator, lays rightful claim to all he's made. He's made everything. He's the author. He's the author of me and you. You see, sin, according to the Bible, runs far deeper than just isolated actions. Now, actions are certainly involved, and that's what we see outwardly in our behaviors. And if you want to go back and see in Exodus chapter 1 later today, you'll see that Pharaoh's sin had acted in a way that for him to initiate a program of oppression, eventually leading to infanticide. But we need not look to very far to see an example of, of sin. I'd ask you just to consider your life this past week. What was your attitude regarding God? Does it in any way reflect the indifference or disregard that Pharaoh's does? Do the decisions that you make take into, into, into consideration what God's word has to say? And might God's word even be a priority to consider for you? Friend, to take this posture towards God is utterly foolish, and it is sinful. It won't lead to a good end. And now a Christian is someone who has come to realize that they too have lived like Pharaoh. They've propped themselves up as an ultimate authority ignoring God's rightful claim to live in acknowledgement to him. Yet, in recognizing this, they have confessed their guilt to God and have turned away from a self-consumed life to a Godward life, where they love God and others rightly, as they ought to have. And while Christians would never claim to be perfect, and unfortunately, they will struggle against a tendency to gaze inwardly and have to fight against that. They are people who have had a resolute rejection of sin. They've made that decision to reject sin and now they look to Jesus for forgiveness of sin, each time going back to Christ and each time being met with forgiveness. By doing so, God gives them the Holy Spirit to indwell them, empowering them to live at peace with him today and have assurance tomorrow in the future that when they die, they'll be in heaven with him forever. Church, what a joy it is to know that we don't have to worry about ourselves 
We don't have to live consumed with ourselves anymore because we have Christ. If you're here today and you realize that you too, like all of us at one point, have been living in a manner like Pharaoh, disregarding God and self-consumed, what the Bible commands you to do is to repent or turn from your sin and turn towards Jesus by faith, by faith in his sacrificial death on the cross to pay for your sin. Friend, I promise you'll be met. The scriptures promise, regardless of what I say, the, the scriptures promise that you'll be met from God with forgiveness. And in doing so, you'll experience joy that comes with being at peace with him. So again, in verse three, Moses and Aaron attempt to plead with this ignorant king, but it's to no avail. This time, they'd, they say to him that they'd like to go out into the wilderness for a three-day trip to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, it seems like these guys are just asking Pharaoh for the Friday off so they can have a three-day weekend. You know, they're gonna, they said, okay, Pharaoh, we're gonna go out to the desert, we're gonna burn some stuff up, and we'll promise we'll be back on Monday. Now, growing up in rural Arizona, I can say I've done my fair share of that, and it was, it's pretty fun. But this is not quite what these men are getting at. They knew, and according to Pharaoh's response, he knew what their intentions were. A helpful example, kind of think through this, would be um, if you go to uh, your roommate or a spouse and you ask them for the TV remote. You guys are watching a movie or watching a show and say, hey, can I, can I have the remote? And now both people admit they know that you don't just want to hold on to some plastic while you're watching TV. You have full intention to change the channel. So similarly, in this humble request, Israel, and, and through Moses and Aaron, were intending to communicate that they planned on leaving Egypt never to return again. And now Pharaoh, consumed with, his, with the continuing growth of his own empire, recognizes that this, that this Yahweh has become a distraction to the work. They're worshiping, and it's becoming distracting to, to his plans. Acknowledging that the Israelite population has grown, he takes a page from the playbook of a predecessor and increases the burdens of the people of Israel by, by withholding supplies for bricks, yet still requiring the quota to be met. What God was receiving from Israel as worship, Pharaoh proclaims as idol. Through these burdens, his goal is to make them so busy that they would consider these words to be lies. Throughout this section of, of, of the passage, we've seen that feast, sacrifice, and rest to Pharaoh is being compatible with work, task, and idol to Pharaoh. It's important, church, that we recognize what we're being introduced here is in fact a contest of worship. For this context to, even, contest to be even more clearly seen, see in how both make the address backed by their own authority, by their own name. Look in verse 10. It says, thus says Pharaoh. And then glance back up to, to verse one. 
It says, thus says the Lord. As we progress through Exodus, we will see that this is not just a, a struggle between a man and a king. This is not just a struggle between a nation and another nation, but rather we'll see this as a struggle between the Lord and the gods Pharaoh represents. We must not think, we must not must understand this contest though. While Pharaoh seems to think of himself as a god here, Pharaoh is no god. He is a man created and accountable to God just like, just like us. And rest assured, in time, he will come to know the one true God. But be assured, like Pharaoh, one day we will all come to know God as well. Only those who have known him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, will have the joy of dwelling with him in heaven forever. But those who don't know Jesus will only know him as holy judge Punished, for, punished forever in hell. That's what the scriptures tell us. Let's, let's continue on in our passage, looking at verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks! And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you. But you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out of Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And we see here the foreman take a stab at meeting with Pharaoh, seeing if they can placate his anger. Thinking that through the words that, that they say, they can convince him to relent just a chapter ago, these are the same folks that we saw bowed down in adoration before the Lord. And where do we see them now? We see them pleading and crying before Pharaoh's throne. What a stark difference. And just through a few events. Notice how they even self-identify with Pharaoh. Look in verse 15. It says, why do you treat your servants like this? And then, he, and then more so in verse 16, twice. No straw is given to your servants. Behold, your servants are beaten. Three times we see the foreman confess to belong to Pharaoh, all in attempt that he would relent from his torture. Where has this confidence in God gone? Has it suddenly vanished so quickly? Has Pharaoh's scheme worked so well that they would throw in the towel just to go back and serving their old master? Brothers and sisters, our church may be situated in Tempe, 
And while we may not experience physical persecution like these people did, and we should praise the Lord for that on account for faith and worship of the Lord, but, but how do we react when we're mocked by a classmate or teammate when evangelizing the gospel to them? Or how do we react when we're demeaned by a family member because of our commitment level to this church? Or how do we react when we're challenged by coworkers, when our Christian convictions run against the grain of a company policy? In those moments of, of, of trial, do we too find the temptation to run back to our old master appealing? With no end in sight, these four men direct their attention, direct their attention at what they perceive to be the guilty culprits, Moses and Aaron. Surely these two are to blame for the suffering. They messed it up. They said something wrong to Pharaoh to, to make him angry. These are the leaders that botched it. The Lord would never, never allow suffering like this to happen to his people. Especially after he told them that he would deliver them. Let's continue looking into verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Unfortunately, it seems as if this situation has caused Moses to reach his breaking point as well. Now we might imagine or envision Moses doing some mental review of God's promises. From, remember back in the, in the burning bush meeting in Exodus 3? We can, we can see him double checking to see if he had mistakenly missed a promise of excessive burden increases from Pharaoh. At a loss, Moses, just like the foreman, just like the rest of the Israelites, proceeds to heap up judgments and charges, but this time in God's direction. It looks by the sounds of it that Moses had expected this exodus to be a smooth operation, but the situation that the people, the, that they find themselves in, it hasn't gotten any better. It's gotten worse. What we see Moses saying can be reduced down to a question that he's, that he's asking. Can God really be trusted? Will God really do what he said he's gonna do? Is God really as competent as Moses had expected? Christian, how do you react when your expectations are far from being found to be met? When life has sent you heading down a direction or a path that you never anticipated, can you not also say with Moses, there have been moments in your life where you have been quick to throw your hands up in despair, accusing God of being cruel or being absent or doing evil to you? When suffering in life 
it seems to have gotten worse, but not subsided. And not just suffering in a general sense, in a, in a living in a fallen world sense, but actually suffering on account of Jesus. You've pledged your allegiance to him, and you're seeking to do your best to follow him obediently by his word, and yet things proceed to get worse. How closely, if we're honest, all of us could relate to the feelings Moses is expressing here before God. Moses, we see, was a man, in verse one, boldly speaking to Pharaoh. And now we see, at the end of the chapter, that he's speaking even bolder to Yahweh. What will God's response be to these charges? Will he allow his holy character to be questioned? Let's continue on into chapter six. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Church, as I read these, I find so many encouraging things about our God. As I read this passage, I see God's character displayed for us. And like a loving father, patient, God responds to Moses, not with retaliation for questioning. Moses throws up some pretty serious charges. But God responds with love and patience. And he, and he reminds Moses of what he's done in the past and what he promises to do in the future. In a sense, God is pulling back the curtain 
and allowing us to see who he is. And while frustratingly, God doesn't directly answer Moses' charges in the way that he would have liked or we often want, God, again, just like he was answering Moses back in the land of Midian, when he was being called for this task, answers Moses by revelation of himself. Church, God knows that when suffering in life comes, what we're really looking for isn't answers to specific questions. Because he knows what those questions are really getting at. What we really want to know when we're suffering, unexpectedly, unjustly, is that God is trustworthy. We really want to know that he's present with us. And this is what he shows. He shows that he's been present in the past and he will be present in the future. And as the Exodus will be played out over the subsequent weeks, we will see that God does everything he does to make himself known in the fullness of his character to his covenant people. And because of this suffering, in particular, Israel would come to know God in ways that even the patriarchs, those who had lived and heard the promises but never saw them fulfilled, He would know them, the people would know him, as a redeemer and as a deliverer. It's wonderful. Church, sit in these words. Ponder, pour over them. When you you meet brothers and sisters who are discouraged, who are suffering, encourage them with these words. These are promises from God, from his mouth. Now, there is much here that we can discuss and and be enjoyed further, but I want to, to end our time by considering the lesson that God would have us learn from this passage this morning. Now, instead of answering Moses' questions directly, he simply reminds Moses of what he said would happen. It appears like Moses had gotten so caught up in God's promises of deliverance and freedom that he forgot a significant detail in God's revealed plan. Two times previously, in Exodus 3.19 and 4.21, God had told Moses that Pharaoh would be resistant to the people leaving Egypt. And if we closely go back and review God's plan in its fullness through Exodus 3.16 through 22, we will see that Moses had apparently forgotten to take these elders to meet with Pharaoh as well. God instructed him to ask diplomatically to let the people of Israel go. What do we see in verse 1? We see Moses demanding that Pharaoh let Israel go. Moses had gotten so caught up with his expectations for how quickly and effortlessly God's plan of deliverance would unfold, and it led him to forget God's word. And this led him to despair when those expectations weren't met. Brothers and sisters, this, God uses this dialogue to remind and reemphasize what he has done for the people in the past and what he will do for the people in the future. What Moses hears is not something new. 
These are the same words that God had given him in Midian. And why, what's the purpose for, for this repetition? Why couldn't have God just wiped out Pharaoh in Egypt? Well, it's instructive for, for Moses, for the people as they would enter the land, and for us today, that when, when bumped up against suffering, we fight despair by aligning our expectations with God's word. We fight despair from suffering by aligning your expectations with God's word. Church, we have the scriptures. God has literally handed us the play script of how all of life will turn out. And and it ends with us winning, ultimately culminating with the return of King Jesus and him dwelling with his people. And I think it would be a tremendous encouragement for us to look at those words, look at that promise, look at the end for us today in the words of Revelation 21, one through four. Hear these words. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And if you look closely, back in Exodus chapter 6, see how similar these words are that God had given to Moses in verses 6 through 8. We see here that the same God who had promised to Israel to bring them out of the land, and as Exodus will show, ultimately delivered on that promise, is the same God who makes these promises we find in Revelation 21 today. Why would God do anything different? If he did what he did in the past, surely he will do it in the future. And he's proven himself by sending his son. What we must do as God's people both now, in the past and to now today, is learn that the key to fighting despair from suffering as we wait upon the Lord is by listening to what God has said and then aligning our expectations with what his word says. Church, God is faithful and we can trust him. He will surely do it. However, we must learn from these people's mistake to not just pick and choose which promises to remember. If you remember, Jesus, prior to his arrest and crucifixion, said to his disciples in John 16, that in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And even Paul, when he went back to check on the churches he had planted in Acts, we read in the 14th chapter, verse 22, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Church, these two are God's unchanging word for us. They might be hard things to hear, but it's God's word nonetheless. They encourage us to take heart. 
Because of Christ, we know deliverance that Israel had not yet known. However, as we live in the already but not yet reality, knowing that nothing can, present, can prevent Revelation 21 from coming to pass, we must continue to go back to God's word and to dwell and to remember and to read what he's done and what he will do. And as we do so, we'll see our own lives and this church, Church on Mill, be marked by an ever-increasing joy and buoyancy amidst suffering because our expectations for this life until our Lord's return have been properly aligned. I'm gonna close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for your kindness in giving us your word. Father, I pray that we would have a desire to know your word and to share your word with, with each other. God, we don't want to just say our own opinions, our own thoughts when suffering arises. We want to go back to what you have said. Lord, help us to be diligent in knowing your word. and Help us to be reminded of what you have said when suffering arises. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.